And now as we come to the scripture, let me ask you please to, to pray with me. Father in heaven, again, it amazes me, us, that we would have before us um, the scripture, the word of God. Um, it's amazing um, that you were able to work in the minds, lives of men to write that which is true concerning you, concerning us, concerning life. We pray that never would we take it for granted, that we would listen and believe and apply, live, so help us in all of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn please to Second Timothy in chapter 2. I'm going to read through verse 13. I'll only be able to take up through verse 7 at best, but I want to read that whole section, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Remember, just quick review, this is a letter of the apostle. His name is Paul. He wrote to this one with whom he had great affection, this one he calls his child or son in the faith, uh, Timothy. And Timothy is a pastor present in the ancient city of Ephesus. And so when I say at present, I mean in those days, obviously. And um, so this is a letter to Timothy and to the church there and how they're to conduct themselves, live uh, in that place um, as the church. Hear then the word of God. Verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. I want, God will help me to take up where we left off last uh, Sunday, and that is to take up this verse and its implications, where Paul says in verse 1, be strengthened by the grace of that is in Christ Jesus. Last Sunday, I wanted to establish the fact of it or the what of it that we are indeed as those who belong to Christ Jesus, recipients of strength so that we can live the life that God has called us to live, to live by faith in him and all the implications of that. So Paul says that we're to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, this same grace, grace meaning God's gift to us, the 
favor that we receive from him that's unmerited, that we don't deserve. In fact, we deserve the opposite of it, but, but yet he comes by his grace to bless. The same grace that brings us salvation is the grace that enables us as well uh, to live, to live by this faith that we have in Jesus. That's, that's the fact of it. This comes from grace. We can define, I suppose you could say, grace with this little device, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. One of the riches that came to us at the expense of Jesus, cost of his life, was so that we would have strength to live. And so it comes from Jesus um, by way of this gift. By way of this grace, he's the source of us and it comes to us by way of this, this grace. We're to be strengthened. I used this morning, as we began our service, our, our prayer of invocation really, came from Ephesians and chapter 3. If you pay attention, you notice that I steal liberally from the scripture when I pray. That's how I know I'm praying something substantial. And something pleasing to God, I figure I'll just take it from what he's already said. That'll work. Well, you'll notice this prayer in Ephesians chapter chapter 3. Uh, Paul prays, really. He says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God and then Paul adds as you know this sort of benediction at the end um, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that at work within us, this power at work within us to strengthen us, to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So if we think he can't do it, he's saying, oh yes, I can. Right? I can do more than you can ask of me. I can do more than you can imagine. And, and so this prayer that we be strengthened uh, within uh, is one that he says, yes, that's true. I answer that, that prayer. And the prayer being strengthened is that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Now, you say, as a believer, doesn't Jesus already live within me? Am I not united to him? And the answer is yes. But Paul uses a particular word here uh, for dwell, which means to permanently dwell. He wants to impress the fact that Jesus has come to make his home in us. The New Testament language of Jesus is that he abides in us, he remains in us, he stays there. And as the one who stays there, who is the one who lives in us, then he comes, and we could put it this way, he comes to remodel our lives. He moves in, moves out all that isn't consistent with him, moves in all that is consistent with him. Now that sounds easy, but you know how that feels, Right? We know how that feels, but, but, but it's, the, it's the prayer that he would then strengthen us to be, and to live out this faith which he has given to us and called us to. 
And so the prophet Isaiah reminds us that they who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. This waiting upon the Lord is trusting in him, considering him, seeking him, praying, listening, acting. It's it's those who wait upon him will then renew their strength. And, And you know, this expression I mentioned last Sunday to renew is in Hebrew to exchange. So we're giving our strength to him and receiving his or exchanging our strength or better our weakness for his strength. And the scripture tells us that that comes to us because we have been joined together with Jesus that he lives within us. He's that close to us to be able to say that he lives within us. And so that closeness, that union, then enables him, causes him, if you could say it that way, to strengthen us, to give us his, if you will, strength that we may live. Now it's, in one sense, an easy thing to forget about uh, because, especially for us as relatively strong Americans, we pretty much get along all right. And we think over time that it's our doing. It feels like our doing. And so we just over time think, well, I don't really need strength from him because it just sort of happens. Uh, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8 speaks to that as Moses is taking uh, the Israelites or at least instructing them on their going into this new land of promise. He warns them, he says, be careful because when you get there and you start planting your fields and building your houses and all of that, you'll forget God. You'll think it all came from your power and your wisdom. And so we forget our weakness. Times come, however, when we realize our weakness. And when we realize our weakness, we wait upon God and we say, oh yes, all my strength must come from Him. That's why we worship one day in seven to stop and to gaze upon God and be reminded who he is as creator, who we are as creature, and realize that we are dependent upon him. So God has established this cycle of rest and worship and work and all of that so that one day in seven, uh, we refocus. So what's ever gotten out of focus, he gives us a day to say, now get it back in focus. Realize who you are. Trust me. Your strength, all of it, comes from me. And so in Jesus, you see, we realize, oh, yes. So as we think about the week that's to come, and even the week after that and the week after that, although we probably shouldn't go too far, Jesus said, think about today. Tomorrow will bring its own problems. But as we look and see what's ahead, he says, I will strengthen you because of what Christ has done. And it's my gift to you to enable you. So trust me. That's the what of it, the fact really of it. Now, today, I want to to take into the why of it. That is, why do we need this strength? Next week, we'll talk a little bit about the how. Now, the how is even more mysterious. Because we we know the means by which, through which we receive... uh, this grace, in fact, 
In our tradition, at least, we have this, this category of theology called the means of grace. And we speak of the Word of God as being a means by which God grants, gives grace to us. We talk about the sacraments as the means through which grace comes to us. We can talk about prayer even as a means of grace. And some would add fellowship and so forth and so on. Means by which God's grace comes to us. Next week we'll pick that up because verse 8 starts with this great expression, Remember Jesus. And providentially it just happens to be next week, the first Sunday of the month. So we'll have communion so you can get already the connection that we'll make on that one. But that will help us. But, 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 but how really this happens is mysterious to us. Again, if I could quote our friend uh, Jerry Bridges from this book that's coming out soon. He says, you might ask, how does God's spirit work in us? He says, the answer is, we don't know. An 81-year-old guy who's walked with Christ for 60 years telling me he doesn't know something. I guess he's right. The answer is we don't know. Is the Bible never addresses that question. Paul wrote, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. But he never tells us how the Holy Spirit interacts with our human spirit to create this assurance. He simply says he does it. How he works in us remains a mystery. But the fact that he works in us does not remain a mystery. We know that. So it's the what of it. It's the fact of it. It's the that of it. And so we need to grab a hold of it. Today, sort of the why. That is, why do we need this strength? Now, we've already considered this some, and, and, and frankly, it's, it's relatively intuitive as to why we would need this strength of God. As Paul writes to Timothy, and, and, and Timothy looks at the course of, of his life, his calling in Ephesus, his own personality and weaknesses and all of that, and his own sin, surely he needs God's strength in order to be the pastor of the church in that situation. Surely we understand in the context of our own lives, our own sin, our own weakness, and all of that, uh, to, 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 to need the very strength of God, to be able to live as a follower of Christ, to be able to live in such a way that's, that's really pleasing to him. But, 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 but Paul's going to lay out for us three illustrations, three comparisons, three um, metaphors, really, as to, uh, to, to, to highlight this for us. In a sense, he's going to say we're going to have to endure hardship, we have to suffer as a soldier, we have to compete like an athlete, and we have to work like a farmer. Those are his three illustrations. Before he does that, although he gives uh, Timothy a rather practical piece of advice, and so let me just lay that out first, verse 2. And he says, And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Well, uh, a very reasonable thing to instruct a pastor to do. Basically, he's telling Timothy to pick up on what I wrote in your first letter about having elders who can come alongside and, and help. And he's saying, listen, I've been teaching and you've been hearing me teach and, and many witnesses have heard me teach and you, you know that and you've received from them and from me this gospel. So I want you to take that gospel, find faithful men in the congregation in Ephesus, and I want you to entrust it to them so they can teach as well. So on the one hand, this would be a great help to Timothy. On the other hand, it, it's a way for um, uh, uh, this uh, gospel to, to, to go out, to be shared, for the church to be able to multiply and so forth. But there's also a very practical piece to this as well. Because if you look in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy verse 9, Paul says this to Timothy, Do your best to come to me soon. 
And then in verse 21, he says, do your best to come before winter. And so we realize that Paul is saying, entrust this gospel to faithful men in Ephesus because Timothy, you're going to leave. I need you here. I need you to come and visit me and to be with me here in prison, no doubt, before I die. But I want, because I want you to bring me some things. Before winter, he's going to ask him to bring some very practical things like his coat. Uh, but he's also going to ask him to bring parchments and other things. And so he's, Timothy's going to leave. And so now Paul says, I want you to make sure that the gospel's entrusted to faithful men in the church there in Ephesus so that when you leave, which will be soon, so that when you leave, everything will remain the same. On the one hand, he's saying to Timothy, Timmy, Timothy, realize the church in Ephesus doesn't revolve around you. It revolves around the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as long as that's stable, as long as that's planted, as long as that's established in the church in Ephesus, Timothy, it doesn't matter whether you're there or not. And so you can be free then, once the word is established, you can be free then to leave and to come and visit me. But the life to which Timothy has been called in Ephesus and the life to which the apostle is calling him even still as he calls him to leave that place is one where Timothy is going to have to be strong. He's going to have to be stronger than he inherently is. He's going to have to be stronger than he can imagine himself being because Paul's going to call him to join him in suffering. I don't know how many invitations you've gotten to things in your life, but my suspicion is you've never gotten one quite like the invitation that uh, Paul gives to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. He says, Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering uh, for uh, the gospel by the power of God who saved us to a holy calling. Paul, in a sense, is saying, Listen, I want you to come, and I want you to share in my suffering for the gospel. That's my invitation to you. I want you to share in, in this suffering. And so he's going to need strength. He says, in fact, you're going to need to have the strength of a good soldier. You're going to have to have the competitiveness, if you will, and the understanding of the game as an athlete has. And you're going to have to have the constitution and the strength of a farmer in order to make this work. These are the three illustrations that... Uh, that he gives here. This first comparison, he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So the question for us is, how is it that a soldier who's worthy of the name soldier takes up the potential, the possibility, the reality of hardships of suffering? How does one who's worthy of that name soldier, how does he really come to grips with the fact that in the midst of his calling as a soldier, his difficulty, his hardship, his sacrifice, and perhaps even death? And so he's calling Timothy, you see. He's saying, this is how you need to understand your life. You need to learn something from the way soldiers live. 
Notice how he puts it. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. You know, Timothy wouldn't be surprised at all that Paul's talking about soldiering and all that because one of Paul's favorite illustrations, comparisons, metaphors is this whole notion of, of warfare. I mean, we, we read it in, in Paul's letters. You know, the classic passage in Ephesians chapter 6 where Paul compares our life to warfare, and he says, so much so because of the enemies of our soul that we must then take up the armor of God. And so he lays out our life as soldiers armored. And he says, in order to live as a Christian and realize that this is battleground, then then you must be armored in a particular way. So you must put on the belt of truth and all of that. So, So Paul uses that as an overlay to help us understand the life that, that we're to live. He speaks in Galatians chapter 5 of this war between the flesh and the spirit, between our sinful natures and the Holy Spirit of God in us. And he says there's this war that goes on tearing at our souls. And, and so we understand uh, that uh, as well, even as, as Paul writes to Timothy, he, he lays out for him in, in various ways. For instance, in uh, chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, verse 18, he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made about you and so forth. He says that you may wage the good warfare. There's there's a fighting that's going on to to maintain faith and to spread this faith because there are enemies of it and enemies of our soul. So he he speaks uh, in that regard. And then in chapter 6, in verse 12, he writes to Timothy, he says, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And so he says there's this, this, this battle, you see. This fight. Luther had the great layout of the enemies of our soul as the world, the flesh, and the devil. I think in Luther's, Luther's life, they didn't come necessarily in that order. I think he saw the devil first. But we have classified the world, the flesh, and the devil, that really which is against our soul. So we see this, this battle. And so again, no, no real um, surprise there. Paul even summarizes his whole life in this sort of battle warfare imagery verse 7 of second timothy chapter 4 he says i've fought the good fight i've finished the race athletics i've kept the faith and so we see these these images in 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 life imagine paul thinking this through uh here he is in prison there were prison guards and other soldiers i'm sure around him all the time and so that on his mind no doubt but he says to timothy you know I need you to suffer like a good soldier. A good soldier is single-minded, he says. He doesn't get entangled in civilian affairs because he realizes that he only has one person in the whole world with whom he is to, uh, to please, and that is his commanding officer, this one who enlisted him, this one who called him, this one who made him a soldier in the first place. Notice, he says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. He says that's his aim. So he arranges everything in his life around the fact that there's a war on, arranges everything in his life around the fact that there's only one person he's to please. And so what he thinks about all the time is, how will this help me? Or in what ways could this hinder me from pleasing my commanding officer? That's in his mind all the time. And so he arranges his life in such a way and, and thinks about his life in such a way that he's willing to sacrifice 
whatever it's necessary to sacrifice. He's willing to take up whatever is necessary to take up. Uh, He's willing to lay down, even if it's his own life, whatever is necessary for him to lay down in order for his commanding officer to be pleased. Because he knows that what's really at stake here is the outcome of the war. And he knows that his commanding officer knows more about the outcome and how it will come out than he does. And he's a soldier in the midst of this. And thus he arranges everything around that very fact. I've read that, and even been told by my parents, that during World War II, there was an expression that explained sacrifice in the lives of people. For instance, if you would see a person walking five miles to work in the winter during the time of the Second World War, You wouldn't hardly need to even ask, why are you doing this when you have a good car sitting at home? Because the person would just simply say to you, well, there's a war on, so I can't waste the tires. I couldn't waste the gas. There's a war on. I'm willing to sacrifice that, sacrifice my comfort, because I get it. I know what's going on. And there's a sense in which soldiers are always, I mean, there's a war on can't get entangled in that. There's a, I can't get entangled in that. I can't get entangled in that. And, and, and so, you see, it's always on the soldier's mind. In Timothy's mind, as he gets this invitation from Paul to come and share in my sufferings, Paul's saying, in a sense, be careful, you know, if you come and visit me, they may do to you what they did to me, which is arrest me, because that's what they've done to me. And we know from Hebrews, I mentioned this last week, chapter 13, There's that little line, the author of Hebrews says, well, Timothy has been released. So it did, in fact, happen, this persecution of Timothy. This war was on, he knew it very much. Now, of course, you and I don't experience it now here in history in the U.S. as he did. We we really don't know physical and that kind of political, if you will, persecution. Oh, it affects us in other ways mostly in the context of relationships, that we, we get the fact that there are those who are hostile towards us. There's, it's more philosophical, if you will, more in the area of ideas and lifestyle and all of that, how well we fit in or don't, what we can say or can't, how we're received or not, those kinds of things in the lives of people. Timothy had something else, of course, this potential for physical persecution. He said, listen, here's why you need strength, Timothy, because I'm calling you to live like a soldier in the midst of this world because there will be suffering because there are enemies and it may cost you dearly. But a soldier doesn't really mind. Why? Because he's made up his mind as to what life really is. I've been told by soldiers that if you know that your commanding officer has risked his lives for his men, it is easier to live to please him. It's easier to obey him. It's easier to submit to him. It's easier to yield to him. Now, you have to do it anyway. But when you know that that's the kind of person 
that you are submitting to, then it's with greater joy. Well, see, you, you see, that's the thing about us as, as believers, isn't it? Because our commanding officer has really given his life for us. Notice how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, in verse 14. He says this. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This one who's enlisted us, this one who has called us, this one who says there'll be hardships in various forms, even to the point of people being against you because of me. So there's those kinds of hardships. He says, he says, follow me. And the question is, can we? And he says, yes, I'll give you strength. Can we trust him? The answer is yes. Why? Because this is the very one who gave himself for us. This is no, no casual observer in our lives. This is the one who's loved us dearly. And he'll only lead us by way of that love, that great expression in that psalm we love of Psalm 23, that he'll lead us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's where he's leading us, you see, into paths of righteousness. And yes, there'll be hardship on that path. Suffering, perhaps, even on that path. Persecution, perhaps, even on that path, as many of our brothers and sisters know it even today in various parts of the world. But he says, ah, you can trust me in this. Can't really serve two masters, Jesus said. And of course, this difficulty, this suffering, this hardship, these persecutions were told to us very openly, very honestly uh, about Jesus. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew in chapter 5, in verse 10, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on, a, on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He said, listen, when this is happening, understand your identification with me. He would say later to his disciples, if they hated me, they'll hate you. It's going to happen. No servant is above his master. He said, rejoice and be glad because you're identifying with me, the apostle Peter. He said, don't be surprised when fiery trials come your way. <laughs> Great meaning to those Christians in that first century because there were those who understood literal fiery trials. He said, don't be surprised at that. You're blessed identifying with Christ. Suffering for his name's sake. Jesus, in this wonderful expression, came in various forms, but it came like this. He would say, on my account, or for my name's sake. Now, blessing comes on his account and for his name's sake, but, but generally we use that expression. We say, listen, they're going to hate you on account of me. They're going to persecute you on account of me. Uh, that was the identification the hardship that would come. But he'll strengthen us for that. 
But that's what it means, you see, to really follow after him. The, the kind of good soldiering that we must do. That's our mindset. That whatever it takes, I will follow him. Wherever he takes me, I will follow him. We sang a song this morning that I trust uh, you will. One of the reasons we continue to kill trees and give you one of these every week, since we can do it that way too, uh, is so that you'll take this home and, uh, and, 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 and use the order of worship as a way to understand your relationship with God and all that. But also these songs, the words are a blessing. You can take this out and you can clip it out and stick it on your mirror. I call that mirror Christianity. But whate'er my God ordains is right. You read all the implications of that. Meditate that on that this week. Trust him. This is what it is like to follow me. That's why we read that passage this morning first from Paul's own experience. You notice in Second Corinthians chapter four, you can you can see the juxtaposition of weakness and strength. He says, We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. And if you would ask Paul, well, how did you keep from being crushed? He'd go, Well, the Lord strengthened us. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Paul, perplexed. I get that. I get the confusion that comes with being a follower of Christ and wondering why are these things happening and these other things not happening. And I wonder why I have this and I wonder why I have that. We get perplexed in various kinds of situations. But he says he wasn't driven to despair. And you say, how could you be kept from, how could you not be driven to despair given what you've experienced and what you've seen and all of that? And he says, well, because the Spirit of God strengthened me. Persecuted but not forsaken. People forsook him all the time. He says, I'm left her alone. Nobody spoke up for me. But he knew he wasn't forsaken. Why? Because the Spirit of God was with him. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. He's been being killed all the time and getting weaker and weaker. But this so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And then in verse 16, he says, we don't lose heart. How can you not lose heart, Paul? He says, though our outer self is wasting away. You kind of get the impression Paul was getting worse looking by the day, right? Not just because we all do, but because he was getting beaten a good bit of the time and starved a good bit of the time and, and that sort of thing. It's as though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. We say, how is that work? It's, it's, the Holy Spirit doesn't work in me to strengthen me. And he says, here's the means by which... He knows something, that is, his mind has been renewed. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, the things that are unseen are eternal. He says, I'm I'm seeing it clear all the time. So I don't despair, I'm not being crushed, I know I'm not forsaken. The way a soldier, you see lives by the very word of his commanding officer and lives to please him. Paul says that's, that's how he lives. So Jesus said, listen, you want to come after me? Deny yourself. Now again, that isn't denying things to ourselves, but buying our, denying the sinful self to ourself. 
All of that that's contrary to pleasing our commanding officer. It says deny those things. Put those things to death. That is take up your cross. Cross being an image for death. Crucify them. Kill them. Mortify them. All the things of your sinful nature. Put them aside. You see that's the entanglement that we mustn't get involved in. Some might read this passage and say well the entanglement must be my job. What I really need to do is quit my job and go into full-time ministry. That, that's all that really matters. Of course, that isn't true at all. It really doesn't take that many in full-time ministry. It's not that I don't want the competition. <laughs> but, but, but it just doesn't take that many out of the hole. There aren't that many going to have to do this or get to do this, however you want to look at it. Some days one way, I look at it some days the other. But, but there's just most of the work, you see, most of the real necessary stuff goes on the rest of the week. People often ask me about my job and I say it's significant but limited. Very limited. You see, I'm bound up. A lot of my time is spent alone thinking, reading, writing, all of that. You get to be out talking to people I'll never get a chance to talk to. So it isn't, oh, I need to quit my job and go into ministry because that's all that matters. No, 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 no. Your life matters where you are. And not only, you might say, well, then, then what really matters is I need to spend all of my working hours in my job telling people about Jesus. Well, you'll probably get fired. And you won't have anybody to tell at that point. Plus, you need, we need to understand that our jobs, our vocations are inherently good. What we do, whatever it is that you do with your job, isn't simply so you can be an evangelist there. Now, if you can't be, fine. I'm never against telling people about Jesus, okay? But your job, what you do, is inherently good because God has called you to it. So if you're a plumber, plumb, right? I always tell people, when my pipes are leaking, my prayers, well, they've never stopped the leaky pipe yet. I've laid hands on them. I've even cheated and wrapped towels around them and laid, you know. I need a plumber. That's what you need. You see, plumbers do great things for people with leaky pipes. Uh, Whatever it is that you're doing, God has called you there. He's called you by this cultural mandate to have dominion over the earth. He's called you to be in that place doing that work. That's good work. When, 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 when Paul talks about not being entangled, he says, your work, that doesn't entangle you. That's not the point of it. Okay? Some people take this and say, well, then pastors shouldn't be married. Timothy shouldn't be married. That's an entanglement. No. Genesis 2 still holds. A man should leave his father and mother. He'd be united to his wife. The Levites knew that. They married. Uh, Peter, you remember, was married because Jesus healed his mother-in-law. Sure, he was happy about that. Uh, but Peter healed his, uh, Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, Paul says, I have the right to take a believing wife. So, so it's not about that. Your marriage doesn't entangle you. Marriage is another way to glorify God through it, a calling, a vocation, uh, a way to manifest the kingdom of God and the fact that Jesus rules and reigns. And, and so we, we, no, what entangles us is our sin. That's what keeps us. That's the civilian affair, if you will, that Paul's speaking about. It's our sin that entangles us. The author of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews in chapter 12, in verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we have 
surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. The old language was sin that entangles us, trips us up. How does it trip us up? Why does it trip us up? Because it's like seaweed. It's just wrapped around us. We can't run with it. We can't go with it. He says, that's the thing that entangles you in every sphere of life, whether it's at your job, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's, whether it's in your, your recreation, uh, whatever it's in. Deal with that sin. That's what entangles you. That's what keeps us. Because you see, that's another commanding officer that we live to please. He says, no, 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 no. That's not how soldiers do it. Because you see, if a soldier is double-minded... He won't be willing to give up his life. So the bottom line is, don't be double-minded, but be able to endure suffering, endure hardship like a soldier does. A soldier says, yes, I knew this was coming. Yes, I'm prepared for this. Yes, I've arranged my whole life around this because this will please my commanding officer and thus I will go and there's nothing that will keep me from going. See, what keeps us from going, what keeps us from following, what keeps us from all of that is our sin. Thus, we go through this process, at least I do, we go through this process all the time, right? Of recognizing the holiness of God, recognizing our sin, confessing our sin, repenting, asking God to strengthen and to help us so that we can live in such a way that's pleasing to Him. That we really will be willing and able to arrange our lives around in such a way that, that, that we're they're always prepared to serve, always prepared to follow him in whatever place we're in. See? So Paul says, listen, this is what this life is. And you're going to need strength for this. Don't think you can do it on your own. But be blessed by knowing that you're united to Christ. Be blessed by knowing that whatever he calls you to, he'll enable you. Now again, as we've said over and over again, we don't always feel, maybe never, feel strong enough. That's when we wait upon the Lord. That's when we trust him. That's when we go to him. That's the cue, isn't it? Oh, yes, I get it again. I can't do this. The great expression of scripture, that God gives grace to the humble, but resists the proud. See, it's pride that entangles us. It's pride that says, I can do this. I can juggle both. It's not me. She says, not only this, but this will be go very quickly, these last two, but I want you to compete like an athlete because an athlete competes by the rules. Understand this life to which you've been called in Ephesus and other places in the days of Timothy. Ephesus, of course, had a big stadium, as many of the big cities did, a big stadium where games were held and so forth. And in order to compete in the games, two things had to be true of an athlete. Number one is that an athlete in Ephesus had to stand before a statue of Zeus and confirm that he had followed the rules of training for the last 10 months. So he had to follow the rules of training. He had to eat as an athlete, had to train as an athlete, and all of the sleep as an athlete, live as an athlete. And he had to say, yes, I've done this for the last 10 months because nobody wanted athletes out there who, hadn't, who weren't prepared. And so that was their way to deal with that. They said, okay, you have to stand before the statue of Zeus 
and, and, and be able to, to say, yes, for 10 months I've been training. I've been living as an athlete should live. So they, they needed those rules. Secondly, then to be able to follow the rules of the games. If you didn't follow the rules of the game, then you would be disqualified. And so in order to get the crown, every athlete would know going in, in order to get the crown, I need to follow the rules, training and playing. And that's true for us. He said, don't be deceived. God's not going to be mocked. There's reaping and sowing. So we need to be disciplined and to go through the training. Go through the training of reading the scripture and knowing it. Through the training of praying. Through the training of being in fellowship. Through the training of serving. And we need to do that all the time so that when the really difficult times come, we are ready. Many of you know my wife has a great expression. And she's always saying, do your homework. Now, she's been saying that as a mom for years. Finally applied to our spiritual lives after our kids left the house. But, but this notion of doing your homework all the time. Be ready. So when those times come of deep difficulty, of suffering, when the commanding officer says, all right, now it's time. You see, you're ready. Now, still in the midst of that, we're going to feel weak. But he says, what you will have learned is that power is perfected in weakness. That's the homework. You see, the test is always one question. Will you trust me? The lesson is always dependence. And then he says, you have to work hard like a farmer. Don't think it's downhill. Don't think it's easy. <laughs> don't think that there isn't any, that you don't have to be engaged in this. When Paul starts out by saying, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, I'm thinking beach. I'm thinking beach with lawn chair. Actually, it's what I call my bobbing theory. I'll be honest. I like to go out about chest high and just sort of stand there. So I get the waves coming in and the waves coming out. About an hour of that, now I've learned I have to wear a hat. But, but about an hour of that, I feel really great. So that's what I'm thinking when Paul says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I'm thinking, oh, this is a piece of cake. And he says, oh, by the way, live like a soldier. Oh, by the way, live like an athlete. Oh, by the way, live like a farmer. Oh, that's the reality of it, isn't it? It is engaged. You've got to be completely engaged in this like a soldier. You have to be completely engaged in this like an athlete. You have to be completely engaged like a farmer. And we know how a farmer engages. He, he, he works ahead of time to plant. He works ahead of time to plow. And he seeds and he waits. But in his waiting, he is an idol. He's doing stuff all the time. He's always thinking, always watching, always engaged. And he knows... The soldier knows victory is coming like the athlete knows there's a wreath, like the farmer knows there's a harvest. If you want to enjoy the harvest, engage. Finally this. Verse 7. This may be the most important of all of this. Requires the least explanation, but the most work. 
think over what I say. Jesus, chilling words. Count the cost. Understand what I'm calling you to. Think over what I say. God will help you. Strengthen you even there. He'll help you to see it. He'll help you even to believe it. He'll help you. Because that's the life to which we've been called. The blessing is he promises to give us strength so that we'll see the victory. So that we'll get the wreath. So that we'll know the harvest. Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us. That you would strengthen us with power so we can comprehend the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love of Christ. Father, that you may strengthen us so that we may live in such a way to show that your kingdom has come, that you rule, that you would rule in and through our lives, that you would give us strength to endure every hardship, any amount of suffering, that our minds, our hearts would be fixed upon you so that we live to please no one but you. God, that we can make every effort to serve you so that we might know this harvest of righteousness and peace. Father, enable these words to stay in our minds. Enable us to think upon these things convince us of their truth. This I pray in Jesus' name.